The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to episode number 16. Good to have you here. How are you, folks? On this episode, I'm going to be playing an interview that I did with a German cellist, a man named Jan Vogler, and he's been getting quite a bit of press lately for these concerts, and now it's an album, and it's called New Worlds, and what it is, you know the actor Bill Murray? Of course you do, everyone does. Bill Murray, reading, reciting, if you will, different pieces of poetry and prose from American literature. While Jan Fogler and these other two musicians, Vanessa Perez, who's from Venezuela, a great piano player who's going to be the guest on Wednesday's podcast, and his wife, a violinist named Mira Wang. She is originally from China. So you see where this is going? New worlds, these different continents all coming together to create something that is kind of like America. A blend of all these different things. I think it's beautiful. I have the album. It's New Worlds. And after the podcast interview is over, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how you can win a copy of the New World CD on me. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to do anything. What am I talking about on me? The postage is maybe on me. The albums are courtesy of Crossover Media and the good people of Decca Gold, of Universal Music. And a little more about Jan Fogler. He's a Sony music recording artist. Uh, The New Worlds album is actually on Decca Gold, but he's played all over the world. You're going to notice he's a very passionate person. He really loves music. I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you enjoy listening. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our guest is a cellist a touring and recording artist, Jan Fogler. Thank you for joining us and sharing with us about your life as a musician. Very happy to be here. Is there a greater purpose to the art that you create for you? Well, I think it's about love. I think I was in love with a cello when I was six years old, and somehow that relationship has rather increased than uh, died down. I, I feel still very privileged to open my cello case in the morning and to be able to focus in my life on something beautiful to uh, convey to other people. And then that has brought many beautiful encounters, the cello and let's say the cello talks to the audience and I get feelings back from people I play for. So it's an, it's an exchange of, of feelings basically. And um, I'm very privileged to be able to have that kind of life. I, I'm very thankful. What was it about the cello that drew you in? Well, it was interesting. My parents thought I was looking like a cellist when I was five years old. (laughs) (laughs) And so my parents were musicians, and we had a house full of musicians every evening. They loved to host uh, parties, and so everybody who came to the party had an instrument. When I was five years old, I didn't think there were people who didn't play an instrument in the world. And somehow they thought I looked like a cellist. They gave me a cello. And it it did work. I mean, it's not necessarily always working when you give a child an instrument. You might have to try twice or three times. And with me, I was lucky because I didn't feel like jealous to my brother who played the violin or my sister who played the piano. 
Hmm. So your parents, you said that they were very, very into music always. Yeah, my father was um, had a rather interesting story. After the war, of course, education was hard in Germany, especially in East Germany, where we grew up, where I grew up, and um, in East Berlin. And my father discovered his love for music and for cello when he was uh, 16 years old. He started playing the cello at age 16. It's Today, people would laugh if you say, can I study cello? I'm, I'm, I'm just started and I'm 16 years old. Everybody would say, you should have thought about it 10 years ago. Hmm. <laughs> but back then, he actually studied for a few years, got a very good job at the uh, Opera House in Berlin and had a successful teaching career. But I guess on the cello, he could never 100% express all his feelings. So he was a very intelligent and educated person. So he said, oh, no, no, I don't invest in my own playing anymore. I invest in thinking about music and in teaching and in bringing up new young artists, which was very, very nice. And of course, linked right uh, to his children also. Do you have that same kind of passion? Do you want to instill a love for music in young people? Yeah, but for me, it's more at the moment, more performing. I think everybody has this calling. And my father was very much interested in being a pedagogue. And he had this love for teaching. And I also respected it when I was uh, like starting my career. I was like, oh, don't touch teaching. That's my father's kind of domain. He was so good at it. And and I was, uh, I felt like, there was a runway in front of me I could use, which was performing, where my father, who was also a cellist, was not that active. And he said, no, you go perform. And, you know, and he encouraged me to, to really try to tour with my cello the world. And I hope to inspire also young people. I do give master classes for young players in Asia and in Germany. And it's wonderful to have young players around for a week in, the, in a nice setting and to talk about cello playing. But I always talk more about performing because it's more my profession than than the academic career because I don't know enough about it and I think there are many wonderful professors who know more about the academic world and I'm more about communications with my colleagues or with the audiences. Before you have one of your performances, is there any kind of ritual that you have that, that gets you ready? Yeah, I've figured out that you know, some artists try to calm them down before the show. That would be a disaster for me. I need, I need adrenaline. I need to be awake when I go on stage. So I, I drink strong black tea and I try to play actually quite a bit before the show. An hour before the show, I play myself really into kind of a fast reaction. It's almost like you take a few kind of take your car for a spin, spin on a racetrack or something <laughs> to, to get your reactions up to top. And then I feel relaxed on stage. Then I can actually react. But if I'm slightly too relaxed on, on the stage, then I can't react in the way I would like to because every audience is different. Every hall is different. Every orchestra I perform with is different. And I want to be able to use the opportunity to make create something different every night and not necessarily repeat myself. And how do you do that? How do you not repeat yourself? Well, it happens naturally, actually. It's, <laughs> hmm. it's, uh, for me, it's, it's almost harder to repeat myself because, you know, you make mistakes or you, you're just not quite able to do exactly what you did last night in that beautiful hall, which had a beautiful acoustics. And today you feel maybe a little less you feel more worn out because you had a flight in the morning and you came to this new town and the acoustics are not as ideal. 
so you struggle more and you you look for some way to give the audience what what they you know paid their ticket for and i and then sometimes something new comes out and it's maybe more of a struggle one night is more of a struggle and you struggle to give something from from your soul and and on the other night you're kind of sailing through that's each night for me is different it's, i guess it's the way you are built or you how you do life i think for me it's harder to repeat myself and for me it's easier to react to the situation we're talking with cellist jan vogler tell us about the composers that you most appreciate the ones that you find yourself performing the music of the most well there are always new members of the family of all these beloved composers which which i work daily with but of course there are some Household names we all love. I mean, Bach is almost like a ritual when you play a Bach movement in the morning, which a great cellist in the 20th century, Pablo Casals, he was also a fighter for peace and uh, lived in South France because he didn't want to go back to his homeland, Spain, because of Franco after the war and because of the fascism. And so he was very much having this ritual to play Bach every morning. And I, I kind of adapted that a little bit. So Bach is... It's some kind of a cleansing process in the morning. You play some Bach and you, you, everything is in order in your, in your feelings. And Bach is one of those big figures which can speak to you whether you have ever heard music by him or not, or you just turn on the radio and you hear some Bach, you say, that's beautiful. I mean, you don't need any precondition to, to be able to adapt to Bach. And that counts for all the musicians, but also for anybody. And so... Beethoven, Schumann, Schumann, I love Schumann. Schumann is one of my favorite composers, maybe the most underrated great composer of the past. He was a very emotional composer, and he wasn't having the easiest life. He had a lot of uh, mental issues, and he tried to struggle with his music through all his uh, problems. And that I kind of, this is a journey of different emotions, which I love. Are you very interested in the, the life, the biography of these figures from the past? Yeah, I think it helps me to understand them. If I read a little bit about how they led their life, that's quite astonishing often, because um, if we take our modern life and we say, yes, there's struggle, but take a life from the 19th century, like Schubert, who got ill basically when he was in his early 20s and uh, died just a decade later and knew that he would die and still composed all this wonderful music in the in the face of death, basically. So I think if you read these biographies, it's very, very informative and interesting to see with what basic problems these people struggled in their lives and still created fantastic art. Why do you think it is that the classical music that has survived has lasted so long? I think everything which survived has strong energy. I mean, whether it's in our lifetime, so we, we meet someone and has a, it's someone who impresses you. Maybe it's, it's somebody who just is such a kind person. This morning I went shopping and I met someone at the cashier, basically in the supermarket, and he was having a strong energy. And there are lots of people, I think, whether it's in art or in, in real life, who have a strong energy. And and that energy lives on, basically. And I think with composers, with music, if music survives for hundreds of years, there's something incredible in that music or literature or, or any art. That, that energy is so strong and so special that it just doesn't die, I think. 
Has the reason that you perform, has that changed at all, or has it pretty much remained the same? <laughs> well, it's a, I think it's a struggle to, to define that because uh, there's some selfish part in it. I mean, I do what I like to do, and uh, still I try to keep my eyes open and my ears open. I try to react to my surrounding. I, I do feel that my biggest purpose is to play for the people now and in this moment or tomorrow, but not the way I maybe communicated with them 10 years ago. But of course, there's a selfish part, and the selfish part is that I do love music the same way I loved it for the last few decades. But I hope that I changed my relationship with the music enough to adopt always the new times, because there's something very interesting uh, in a live performance. It is the spirit of our time, which I think comes into every great performance when there is a good communication with the listeners. Hmm. What do you think it is that makes for good music? Is it even possible to define it? Well, I think it's anything you like. I mean, there I'm pretty open. I turn on the radio, I hear something, I hear a song which I like, and it might be from a genre which I'm not familiar with, and I might just love it, and I might find out what it is and put it on my playlist. So I think it's... Great music helps us to live, I think, helps us every day. And it's the, its purpose is to, yeah, to feel good by hearing that music or feel a reflection of our lives in the music. At, at least that's what I do. I love the radio. I listen to the radio all the time and in the morning and in the car. And, you know, so I hear a lot of different music in the radio. And I, it just kind of interests me to find out if it doesn't speak to me. Well, it doesn't speak to me, and I guess you change the channel if you really hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I would be very curious to know, on your playlist, of course I would expect to see some classical music, but what's something on your playlist that would probably surprise our listeners? Oh, I mean, <laughs> perhaps perhaps there would be a lot of surprising, uh, surprising things. I mean, I used to be a huge fan of Madonna, so I would listen to a lot of Madonna songs in the 90s, and my, my friends would make fun of me. Most of them couldn't. I mean, they didn't have any connection to that kind of music, and they gave me Madonna CDs for my birthdays, and with a kind of a smile. And I was like, great, I'm going to listen to this. <laughs> What do you think about the songs from America that came out in the 20s, the 30s, the Gershwins, the things like that, Henry Mancini, what we sometimes call the standards or the great American songbook? Well, that was really part of my education already in East Germany. My father had a great library of all great literature from America. He had Hemingway, Vonnegut, Faulkner, Arthur Miller, all these great books. So with the books came the music, because in Europe, actually, you didn't hear that much Gershwin or even Bernstein. It's really, truly an American tradition of music. It's a kind of, I think, a beautiful combination of the roots of American culture. And so I heard when I was about 14, I heard Porgy and Bess in Berlin, and I was really impressed. I thought, this is totally different music from this European tradition I grew up. I was you know, practicing Brahms, Beethoven, and uh, Schubert. And, and then here was Porgy and Beth, and it was so much more connected with popular culture and uh, jazz and all kinds of 
traditions from the 19th century, some music of the Civil War, Stephen Foster. There was all kinds of new inflections, and I grew to love this music. And I, Mancini, I recorded a few years back. I recorded Moon River, and it was just fun for me. I loved that melody. I loved the film. And, yeah, it's kind of, people loved it in Germany. They said, oh, that's so great. Yeah, of course, Mancini, we know. <laughs> so. Hmm. There's this project that you're involved with. You're going to be touring everywhere. <laughs> I hope there. I hope there'll be some more dates, maybe in Charleston, South Carolina, or in Atlanta, Georgia. It's called New Worlds. And I was hoping you could tell the listeners out there, it's you, some of your other, the musicians that you're working with, and the American actor Bill Murray. Who spoke to who first? Well, we met on a plane. It sounds kind of unlikely, but it's actually uh, how it happened. We were in Berlin boarding the plane, both very tired, I think. And I had in the morning driven from Dresden to reach my plane in Berlin and had a direct flight to New York. And I think Bill had worked on a movie in Berlin, Monument Man, I believe it was. And uh, so we started talking. He was kind of intrigued with the cello going through security, going through the scanner, and then in the plane taking its window seat. He was, I think he was jealous of the window seat. And um, he said, the cello is taking a window seat? And it, it happened when we, when we got to the plane, it happened we, we sat next to each other. So he was across the aisle. I was sitting on the aisle on the other side and then the cello on the window. And yeah, it, ma it got us talking. The cello basically again made the connection. And we had really interesting conversations. So by the end of the flight, Bill gave me his number and said, call me up. And he was going back to Berlin and I invited him to come to Dresden. He came to see a show and we talked about music and it was all very inspiring later. He invited me to come to a poetry walk here in, in New York across the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a very interesting event every June where poets recite Walt Whitman poems on both sides of the river. And yeah, so we we started talking. I think so after after two years of of being good friends, we had the idea of actually coming up with some project. It wasn't obvious at all for, at first, and I guess it grew on us. And I think we we discovered fascinating connections which could create something. So when somebody sees one of these performances, what kind of things can they expect? I think it's very much about the beautiful tradition of American culture. And it is very much about what we talked about earlier, about kind of going out of your boundaries and, and do something new. I mean, we are in, in that evening, we're all doing things we usually don't quite do. And I think that's the beauty of it. It's not an actor reading and I'm playing classical music, which would be kind of easy. Uh, Bill is a fantastic reader. He can read anything so that you kind of, so heartfelt that you are captivated by it. And it is happening in the show, but it's not the main point, I think, that we are doing what we are doing. The main point is when we actually go to each other's world and, and build things, and there's a lot of meeting between word and music. Some of the readings, we play music under his reading, and we, we just worked really very, very creatively and with wonderful hours spent together with, with all the friends and colleagues who helped this project to create something really special, which I think has not been done much to 
explore this music and literature, but in a lively way and in a very versatile way. And you and the other musicians, Mira Wong and Vanessa Perez, the four of you, what kind of relationship do you all have? It really became a friendship. I mean, Bill and I were friends, and uh, Mira, who's my wife, met Bill, and I observed that they had really beautiful communications. That was totally different from the way I communicated with Bill, and I felt like, wow, they really have something to say to each other. So why don't I ask Mira to be part of it? Usually we do some projects together, but she's a wonderful violinist. She has her own life and her own career. So really when they met and talked, I thought, oh, that's natural. I think Mira will be really a good facet in this in this project, chemistry. And then we had together the idea of Vanessa. I have worked with, with Vanessa on tango projects, and she's the most wonderful tango player. You can imagine her. She grew up in Venezuela, but her parents are Cuban, Argentinian, Spanish, and probably much more than that. But there is a certain culture she has that just, I thought, she would fit perfectly in this project. And then I told Bill about it. He said, yeah, sounds, sounds, sounds right. And then they met, and they also liked each other very much. And there was also another communication between them. So it's really a wonderful, joyous friendship, which is super inspiring in terms of what we do off stage, what when we rehearse, when we go out for dinner, when we talk about music, and when we talk about life. And I think that is what we try to bring and what we, I think, will bring to the audience something, you know, out of life and not something artificially created just to bridge to art forms. So your wife, coming from China, it's interesting. All, I, I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but the name of this is New Worlds, and each one of you coming from pretty much a different continent. <laughs> yes, I think that's the, the beauty the beauty of it too. There are so many underlying stories I think and and I believe very much that if you if you tell a story let the story pull other stories with it and then you you might you might get lucky and 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 bring bring really joy joy to people I think. And in this in this particular case we are really from different parts of the world. Something connects us and we are really developing this program further and further and and I think it's if we have so much fun with it, I think the audience will have fun with it. <laughs> Great. We had on Paul Schaefer as a guest, the longtime musical director on the CBS Orchestra with Letterman, and he was talking about having Bill Murray sing on one of the tracks of his of his new album, and he was saying, now he's doing this 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 classical chamber slash spoken word thing, it's, it's, he's emboldened. Was there any kind of self-consciousness, or was he just completely free with this idea? I think that's unique about Bill Murray is that he's brave. He's a brave person. So when, when we worked together, he said, well, I mean, that's, he, he, he would have, he would have his moments where he said, oh, that's, really challenging but at the same time some voice i think told him you can do that and he's extremely musical let's not make any mistake about it he's extremely musical i'm sure paul had the same experience when he worked with him i heard the record i loved it happy street i loved the song <laughs> and i think when you are brave and you you really are willing to leave your home base and say i i go out there and i do this even if you have 
competition from, let's say, Whitney Houston is a great singer, yeah, was a great singer. So, of course, you can compare yourself always to the... T- I can also compare myself to past cellists and just pack my case and close it, you know? So mm. <laughs> I think we all, we all have... If we are really brave and go out there and say the joy and the inspiration is bigger than our fears, I think then we can create something very special. I think that is something Bill is extremely talented at, to just go out there. And then he has so much talent, so much conviction that he kind of, all these hurdles, they just fall down and, and he succeeds. I think that is, that is basically a quality we all can learn from him. I'm, I'm learning while we work together. <laughs> Do you think it's unwise for any artist to compare themselves to others? Nah, no, I wouldn't say so. I think it is important sometimes to compare yourself to also stay grounded because there, it's, 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 it's also some beauty we have. We have the Internet. We can look at other people. We can listen to CDs. We can get inspired by, by other artists. But I think we have to, to find out what we really want in the end. And, and of course, you... You need to, I think you, for me, I think that brings also both of us together. We both like to go out of our comfort zone and say we do something new and we enlarge our artistic views. And I think that is, that is like daily life. I mean, daily life, you have harder days and easier days. Sometimes you have to force yourself, say, I have to do this now. I have to <laughs> go through this day. And sometimes it's, it's very simple. And it's the same thing I feel in music or in art. How did you meet your wife? Well, it was a music festival. That was a kind of a, a usual situation, I would say. It is a, there's a beautiful music festival in Vermont. It's called the Marlboro Music Festival, and it specializes on chamber music. And Mira came. She was a student in Boston. I came from Germany, and we met. And it's an eight-week, almost eight-week venture in the summer in the beautiful countryside of Vermont. So you, you get to know the the other musicians you are there with and you play together in different groups. And so I think it's a very natural way to, to make acquaintances or to, to meet people in a, in a way that you really get to know them. Are there any rules to what you do? Are there things that you, you for example, if you were doing a, a show that was largely a, a collaborative effort like this one that you're doing, is there anything that you would say no I don't want to do that. Yes. I mean, I think the most important thing is you don't, you have to be very sensitive with your partners because you have a lot of different people, or not a lot, but you have different people involved. So you want to always think what brings us forward. That is in, mu- in, the, in the rehearsal, and that's also in the touring together, in communicating. So you, you have to think, especially when you're friends, and this is a group where we are really friends with each other and make music together or art together. So I think that is uh, very, very important, that you put the friendship first and, and you, don't, you, know, you don't think about anything that could endanger that beautiful atmosphere you have created in, in your rehearsals or in your time you've spent together, I think. And then, of course, there's a lot of discipline. There are rules in classical music. There's a lot of discipline. If I don't work for a few days, I sound bad. I mean, I have to work on the cello. I have to practice every day, if possible. And classical music is a little bit like ballet or like any, or like sports very much, like uh, golf, I think. You know, you have to practice and always reevaluate where you are. You need a lot of discipline and a lot of 
love for repetition, I would call it. <laughs> you have to really like that process of having your routine every day, yeah? And I think that's very important. So, so I, I would be like to say that there are no rules in classical music. There are a lot of rules. But I think, you know, rules are not necessarily bad if they, if they help, help you like a scaffolding and then you can still be free, I think. Hmm. Tell us a little bit. We talked about Bill Murray. We talked about you. Tell us a little bit about this pianist, Vanessa Perez. Yeah, Vanessa. Basically, what I said was we, I did a tango project a few years back, and I had all the players together, quite a few different players for this tango project, and my record label asked me, said, who is, who is the pianist? And I actually had not found a good pianist for this project because tangos are very special. I was hoping for someone to inspire me to, to give me new perspective on that subject, and I played with a few people. I wasn't really happy, and... And then I called some people, and somebody said, Vanessa Paris. So I called her up, and we went to a place in Midtown. It was called Klavier House, and we played a few tangos together, which, which I had been playing for years and been um, trying to make them fly for years. And we played that first tango, and it was so special that I gave her a hug and said, okay, let's go to the studio next week. <laughs> and then I told the record company, I said, I found my pianist for the tango album and ever since we've been good friends and she has been coming to germany to my festival in moritzburg and uh, she's just a very very special person very very musical i want to tell everybody out there that they can visit your website it's janfogler.com and i'm going to spell that j-a-n-v-o-g-l-e-r.com in addition to this tour is there anything we can look out for from you in the future? Well, it's a busy year ahead. I'm looking forward. I will tour again with my pianist friend, Elaine Grimaud, who is also a very special a musical partner of mine, a French pianist who lives in the United States and will be on tour with her and will play with many different orchestras. And it's, it's basically a, a wonderful, uh, for me, a wonderful mix of different projects. But I must say that New World Project is a big inspiration at the moment and kind of top of, on my list because it's, it is very inspiring and such a joy to, to participate in. I really hope I get to see this and hear this in person, but is there any chance of there being a live album recording made? There will be an album. It will come out around September, I would say. We recorded it in New York. It was, again, we had three fantastic days together in, in the studio. And in the week before, I came down to Charleston, actually, and I <laughs> spent two days in Charleston. And I wanted to give you that compliment, because when I got the phone call from my publicist about this interview, I said, absolutely want to do this, because I loved Charleston. It's such a charming town. And it was uh, still grim up here in New York. The weather was cold, and there was uh, not much vegetation in the parks. And I came to Charleston, and it was everything was blooming and green and beautiful and I took a bike and I explored Charleston for one and a half days and I had a great time. Also <laughs> got to visit some of the wonderful restaurants. Uh, I was just going to ask you that question. I was going to say, <laughs> did you eat? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you come to Charleston and you don't eat, I think that's a mistake. <laughs> Where did you eat? 
Oh boy, I have to really pull out the card I, because I kind of followed around. But uh, it was a wonderful restaurant near the hotel. The hotel was called. Oh boy, I'm, I travel too much, so the, the names slip. But uh, I have it somewhere. Kind of embarrassed now not to know the name, but you don't have to feel embarrassed. What you can say is, the food was so incredible that you forgot the name of the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yes. True. Well, the food was incredible and also the company. So I think this was, is always what, what makes it is the food and the good company. Yeah. What did you think of the people of Charleston? Oh, it was extremely relaxing. You come from New York City too. It's such a short flight, but you, you really arrive in a different world. And that's what I like about traveling in general, that you see different ways of living and different ways of yeah, responding to life, which is in Charleston already very different from New York. Everybody was very relaxed and had a, a smile on their face, which was very nice. What would you say it is that traveling has done for you? I mean, you have a profession where you get to travel all around the world. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's not easy. You get to a hotel room, you wake up in the middle of the night because you have jet lag and you panic a little bit because next day you have to perform and to be fit and you just sat in a plane for 16 hours or something like this. And and yet the, you wake up in the morning and then you go out and you connect with where you are, I think. And and that is a, a nice part of traveling that you, at some point, it always breaks in and you are there. And it might take a day or two. Sometimes it only takes a few minutes, but then you connect with where you are and you get another perspective and you you have to talk, completely think new. You cannot go with your preconceived ideas. Like at home, you know exactly where your supermarket is, where your friends live, and all these things. But if you're in a different country, you just have to reevaluate everything you have learned or experienced. What is the best thing about being Jan Vogler? <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's as good as to be anybody else. I think I'm a happy person. I'm very fortunate in life, and I'm very happy and I think I most of the time positive but I do think that you know everybody is in his own world and as long as we can communicate with each other everything will be beautiful well speaking of the world and communication I'm going to give you the microphone for the last question in addition to Charleston South Carolina I have no doubt that this interview will be heard by people in New York City I can hope and pray people in Berlin, in München, in Paris. Music is such a universal thing. So for anyone who happens to be listening to this, who is with us right now, what would you say to them? Well, I would say listen to music. If you have a bad day or if you feel a little bit out of purpose. Sometimes I do feel like this. And then you listen to music and I think everybody responds to music. And that's what music is for. It's not necessarily just for the person who goes to a specific concert and saying, I like that music, so I go to this concert. No, I think music is there to survive every day, I think. Thank you very much for joining us. It was my pleasure. It was a very nice conversation. You had interesting questions, so <laughs> it was very nice. Thank you kindly. I'm, I'm glad you agreed. <laughs> All right. You have a good one. I appreciate it very yeah. much. Uh, thank you. It's 
So take care. <laughs> okay. I hope to catch up with you again sometime. Thank you. Bye. Okay. So that was the Jan Fogler interview. I hope you enjoyed listening. And for more information about him, you can visit his website. It's janfogler.com, and that's spelled J-A-N-V-O-G-L-E-R. You can also visit the new website for New Worlds, and that's just newworldsmusic.com. And I'm hoping that I get to see this performance that they're going to do in Austin, Texas. That might be a fun little road trip. That's going to be in March. You can check out their website. You can find out more about their album, New Worlds, which is out now, and just see where they're going to be performing. Now, some of you might be wondering, how can I get a copy of this album for free? Well, I'm going to tell you how. All you have to do is go on thepaullesley.com, my website, and go to contact Send me an email, the first one to do so, with their address, and just a little note, it could be one sentence or two, what they thought about the Jan Fogler interview. They get a copy. That's it. That's all you got to do. Wednesday, we have Vanessa Perez, the piano player from New Worlds, and who knows what we might have for Friday. I don't know. That's all I've got. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>